0: Dear Father in heaven, thank you that when we observe a silence like this, we do not go empty, but instead we're visited in greater power by you. We pray that we might draw closer in our spirits, even as we listen and speak and do all the busyness that goes along with making chapels. May we remain in that quietness of spirit. Bless us in what we do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, I presume too much. I probably do need introduction to some of you. Um, My name is Randy VanderMay, and I'm a professor in the English department, teaching literature and creative writing and, and theory. The poet John Keats spoke of life as a veil of soul-making and now I'm not sure if that's what you and I experience each day we are more likely to measure our progress in horizontal terms we're likely to say what's happening or we're, am I feeling okay what's your emotional register or am I learning anything What's my intellectual progress? Uh, What is my social standing? Uh, Have I paid my college loans? That sort of thing. We talk about our career, but how often do we speak or think about the soul's career? Can you imagine an, an office of career and eternal life planning? Do I see the design of the soul's life? Am Am I tuned into the soul's life well enough to recognize even a single event in it? Do I know when I've made a single step on the vertical axis of the soul's growth? In evangelical circles, we often draw a very simple map. Once I was blind, but now I can see. Praise the Lord for eternity but there's more to it than that. Two years ago a musician here at Westmont challenged me to write a song cycle concerning the Christian life. and He said don't write it from a, Christ- from a doctrinal perspective but write from your lived experience. I did and I responded to his challenge becoming more and more excited because as I wrote I discovered an archetypal story of our souls growth. It emerged and shaped the 24 poems, and brief songs that I wrote. It took the simple shape of a descent from innocence to a pit of broken-heartedness and an ascent again in a state of grace with a retreat along the way into a period of stagnation dryness and doubt. Most excitingly, I found in that story that it was a story already told in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Greek word for Christ's self-emptying is kenosis. And so I gave the word kenosis as a title to the collection of poems because it reflects what I believe is a fitting analogy between our lives and Christ's. In Romans 6, verse 4, it says, We are, therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. When Bart asked me uh, nine months ago if I would do this chapel, I knew two things right away. I knew that I wanted to read those poems here in chapel and I also knew that I wanted to do it through the ironically named Katie Voice, our professional sign language interpreter. I don't have time to tell you Katie's whole story, but for the past 14 years she's been a principal interpreter, actor, and actor with the Access Theater, which is most noted for its widely acclaimed international tour of, of the play Storm Reading. Storm Reading has gone on to become the focus of television programs and award-winning documentaries. Its closing performance was at the 1996 Para-Olympiad in Atlanta and will be featured in an Emmy-winning special, The Power of One, on the USA Channel this spring. And it will be screened at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, March 13, 7 p.m., in the auditorium of the Santa Barbara Art Museum. She is uh, in our midst every day, and maybe you take her for granted. But I find that when I listen to a speaker in chapel, I tend to look at her instead of the speaker. I don't know about you. And I knew that if I read some poems, you would be looking at her too. So why not just put her in the spotlight, which is what I'm going to do today. But I want this to be a special celebration of her art and dance and drama. And more profoundly, for this one day, let's... Let those of us who are hearing impaired be no longer exceptions, but the rule. All of us are hearing impaired. Well, come with me on a soul's journey then. It may help you to think of each poem as a song singing of one particular phase in the life of a growing soul. And before we get there, I want to thank Professor Steve Butler, Professor Gray Brothers, and Professor Warren Rogers, and my student... Sarita Gallagher for their part in this um, uh, performance this morning. We begin as Adam, I would like the lights up on me here at this point. We begin as Adam and Eve began with childlike trust. Think of the little boy, Samuel. Think how you would feel if you would lay aside all doubt and all regret and could put on perfect confidence in God. If I fall, you will catch me. When you call, I will come. If I cry, you will soothe me. You have healing in your hands. When I sleep, you're my pillow. When I rise, you're the light. When I sing, you're the music in my breathing. You are the rest of my soul. In a cemetery in Iowa City, stands a famous grave marker, a black 12-foot-tall metal angel with outstretched wings. Legend has it that the angel miraculously turned black in passage from Poland aboard ship. I shiver when I see it. As I shiver when I think of a particular person in graduate school who was known as an angry woman and a cruel seducer. Childlike trust, when it encounters evil, is not yet compromised, but it suffers a premonition of its own fall. She stands in a boneyard, blackened by rain, looks almost alive as she lifts metal wings. Eyes gleam in the shadow of her wind-whipped hair. She wants you because want is what she is. Not to be able to have you would drive her wild. But when she has you, she'll be done. She'll spit you out and you'll lie rowing on wet driveway, rowing nowhere in your Braunschweiger skin. Pride was the original sin of Lucifer, true. But let's not pay it too much respect on that account. From the vantage point of eternity, the pompous soul can look quite ridiculous. I am a posture, an amiable persona. I've hung certificates to show you who I am. My fat portfolio shows exquisite balance, and I'm quite used to having my way. I wear my virtues in my cheekbones. I bought these medals on my chest. I've been to Ivy institutions, and I'm not in the mood to pray, pipe down to the little voice, tells me I'm wrong, wait just a little while, I won't be long, I'm on the phone, dear, raising our pile, pipe down to the little one, tells me I'm wrong, thank my stars, I have a good God, for my age, they say I'm spry, had I to spend the day in those shoes, heavenly days, I think I'd die, Oh, thank my stars, I have a good God, one who answers when I call. His grace is awfully convenient. It helps to know the Lord of all. Pipe down to the little voice, tells me I'm wrong. Wait just a little while, I won't be long. I'm on the phone, dear, raising our pile. Pipe down to the little one, tells me I'm wrong. When it is tempted, seduced, the soul trembles, hanging in a balance. A word, a touch may restore it or send it tumbling. Tell me what I need to hear, my shepherd, my friend. Tell me that this soft Brazilian love, this warmth of fingers on my arm, this tangled fall of hair, is not the love my soul seeks, not the soul of love, my shepherd, my friend. Non serviam in Latin means I will not serve. In effect, it is what Lucifer said to God in the primeval heavens. It is what Stephen Dedalus, in James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man says to church, school, family, and the nation of Ireland before he goes into voluntary self-exile. It is what anyone in proud contempt, says to the difficult truths of discipline and divinely ordered love. Non serviam, non serviam, I will not serve, lest I become A proud, pathetic, fat sack of shavings like you. Don't let the ring in my nose mislead. I am no slave, but a child of dawn. Behold, when my wings unfurl, how garnets and opals cascade. I grin because I stroll in paradise. Gardens of my own seed. Deal with it, man. There is no heaven, there is no hell, but me! Non serviam, non serviam, I will not serve, lest I become a proud, pathetic, fat sack of shavings like you. The moment when we are betrayed, and know it as a certainty, is a moment when all trust in the untrustworthy is exposed as a delusion. We collapse like pricked balloons. A shiv in this poem is a homemade dagger of the sort one might find in a prison. I've been kissed by holy kiss, but what is this shiv between my ribs? Wide-eyed, I stare with nostril flare. Lover was there, now air. In Dante's Inferno, we encounter the biblical giant Nimrod, a symbol of the foolishness and incomprehensibility of unjust anger. Nimrod blows an uncertain tone on his trumpet and utters the stupid phrase, me, me which is nonsense in any language. My poem on anger is likewise nonsense, with the sound of sense. I wrote it thinking of words that would contort the face into the expressions of anger. I guess I'll excuse poor Katie on this one. Shiftless hit list, fractal jackdaw. Think your paltry, enthymemic mushroom pelt. Can bushwhack an ash can blastula with fork and brag? Or snort fluke a shaggy gibbet with a crampon? Rotterdam! I could batten fascist fish fins with curdled jaundice. I could scarf your fog, you gumshoe. You rusty winch! I'm serious man, this a crime binge, a turtle turf war, a crash course in farce, what you laughing at, shunt, you're asking for some pate de foie gras there, Castro, I guess that's my favorite one. (laughs) Anger is often nothing but a mask for the soul's hurt. Acknowledging hurt is not the same as conversion, but in the midst of it, of hurt that is, even in the midst of a resentful confession of pain, we may receive inklings of our right relation to God. <clears throat> I put my weight on you, as I always do, and you buckled. You call yourself God, but I feel the pain. I was so strong, had love and aspiration. Is heaven so frail that a moment hauls it down? I call on you, God. Get rid of my pain. I confess, it was not you gave the wound. It was another who. You are my God. And you knew the pain. Ah, my days grow down like hair. How long, O God, must I gather air? You are my God. Am I your pain? Oh, do not wipe me from your eye. How long, O Lord, must I swallow dry? Now if the inkling, if even the inkling of our right relation to God is too frightening to contemplate, we are more likely to enter into denial, deflecting blame onto everything but ourselves. The word sibylline in this poem refers to the Greek oracle or sibyl, who would greet a visitor by writing her prophecies on leaves which the wind would then sweep into oblivion. If things went wrong on your epic journey, you could always blame the Sibyl. Civil, civil. Fate wrote my name in water, crossed every T, sent me to sea. It was the woman, she. It was the devil's child in me. Sibylline clippings madly hurled, It was this awful world. Guilt, the fallen fruit, rots far from the tree. Prospering, thanks. I wouldn't lie. Thanks for asking. Now, goodbye. Denial, denial leads to confusion. Even when we're sure of our footing, we may be like, People standing on bobbing ice flows experiencing a deep nausea of confusion. In this poem, I use the word crazy in its original sense of cracked, like the glazing on an old mirror. Right shoe planted on this slab, left shoe on that. Slabs of contention, slabs of conviction, heaving and sinking like ice paving a crazy river, sickness at the pitching heart. You and I know what shame is. We've all felt it. We all deserve to feel it. What we sometimes forget is that proper shame is one of the pathways from old Eden to new Jerusalem. It pricks the skin, strips the skin... To rabbit red, makes lips protrude and backbone bend. Fatherly shame hand, I cannot shame. hold you. If you lifted hold me, I'll be held. Lifting. Only then, only then, bare. bear. Without shame,
1: lifted
0: the wallow, into,
1: into our, our first, first flesh.
0: Prayer. Without shame, no nakedness there. Finally, in hurt, shame, and confusion, we come to the nadir, the lowest point of experience, the darkest night of the soul, when all the claims of the flesh are forfeited, And God, at last, becomes an absolute necessity. When I'm so broken, my teeth won't close. I have no choice of name to call. My own has fled in shame. My friends are smiling by. Earth does not reply. What's left is one. What's left is all. God, oh God, it's come to this. God, oh God, I come to you. When the cry for help is answered, it is by grace. And grace, it turns out, was long beforehand, with our souls, as the old hymn tells us. I refer in this poem coming up to Samuel Taylor Coleridge's ancient mariner who was stuck in a deadly calm on the ocean after killing an albatross for no particular reason and bearing that albatross around his neck. The stagnant sea about him fills with loathsome snakes. It is only when he blesses them unawares, with respect for them as living things, that his ship is freed from the hell it was in. The very impulse to bless the unlovely, he discovers, is an operation of grace. I bless the sea snakes, cried the ancient mariner. Bless them unaware. And so comes grace, behind, beforehand, always, already. And and when did I become aware that I was unaware? Who taught me to ask or to wonder at my asking? And who gives me the sense of who gives me the sense of who? He reigns, already blessing, always. In a state of grace, it is finally possible to let go of the soul's baggage. Doing so is a way of recovering the state of childlike trust. So long have I dragged my long black bag, and here let it fall. I did that. I did that. I did that. Barefoot, naked, dripping on a frigid floor, or fired clean, the burning singes as it seals until an act becomes a way and way becomes a life. So long have I dragged my long black bag Now, in my hand, I offer nothing. Take my hand. Is there anything harder? I mean it. Is there anything harder than forgiving someone who has betrayed you? Think how hard it must have been for God. For us, what a nearly impossible knot to untie. I can't forgive until I love. Can't love until I've been forgiven. Can't bear to be forgiven until I let myself be loved. Can't let myself be loved until I love. Can't bear to love until I let myself be loved. You know, receiving and offering forgiveness may be the key to conversion. We mistakenly think that conversion is a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's not. It's demanded of us every day. The head again bursting, eyes brimming with tears, fears dropping like veils. I'm shedding once more. Were I not drawn by such desire, I would halt at the fear that fronts me, I would fall down, but I glide into newness through walls of flame, memories of melting my sunburnt wings. Have you ever experienced a true conversion of your own heart? Did it leave you a little bit drunk for a while? Well, I wonder, whether I wonder whether there is not in that euphoria that follows conversion a certain mixture of fear and fascination that both draws us on into the unimaginable and yet calls us back to the soul's proper balance. Hallelujah! For all those crooked teeth, the mouth of living gapes, and out flies a dove. Then blood spattered wings batter dark rafters until, with music box tinkle, soul's roof lifts, song streams, and hallelujah! Dove goes lark! Oh, and then the very azure creeks. My God, is there a heaven of heavens? And can I breathe my hallelujahs there? Conversion is not the end of the soul's growth. It's a beginning. Life after conversion is a long process of pruning, tightening, straightening, intensifying, purifying, and discovering the quieter delights of holiness. The shaker chair is there square change the lens cold cleanse shave a face set a pace live in grace from rusted wheel gleaming steel one cup will do without rue, bread too for you But you know, in the midst of a sanctified life, it is not unusual for one's faith to lose its footing, for a time at least. It may be that doubt is necessary to a truly mindful faith. But if a pin were in my pillow... No. If, if gas came drifting. No. If floor should give. No. If promise were unsure. No. And but, yes. But can this joy endure? No. And yes. Yes and no. Well, should I? Can I cut this wandering organ out? And would the surgeon hear my shout? The wrestling with doubt can leave a soul depleted, and spent. The fr- the phrase uh, "proud flash," which you'll hear in this poem is a medical term, sort of informal medical term, referring to a painful build-up of stretched scar tissue. How touchy we are in our dryness. The skyline of the will, curled and blackened like an aging jack-o-lantern, Words aflame died and dried, flaked and blew away. Don't touch my soul. Don't graze my proud flesh. On the inoculum, I encountered trees in the high Sierras that were many centuries old, possibly millennia old, yet which showed no visible means of life support. How like the way the soul feels as it waits for the Lord. I am beaten by weather gnarled and stained, rooted in rock, pelted by rain. Yet I stand whole with the strength of bones, stretching, flaking, taking my dew. Stand still with the strength of bones, open to, open to, open to you. Waiting ends when reconciliation comes. And when it comes, it is a miracle of greening that demands our full hearted, humble thanksgiving. Reconciled. reconciled, reconciled. The word was like a piper's tune far away, sugaring someone else's air. While anger hardened to a hammer in my hand, while pride found temporary nesting in my hair, I couldn't breathe my blessing to the wind. To be reconciled, I thought, would make me die. It would be tantamount to giving up an i I'd have to unseem my skin and let a stranger in. But when word of blessing, unanticipated, Slipped from the soul's keep, it was of sorts an end, making stranger friend. An end of tit-for-tat, of black lists, of nightly cauterizing flames, of the goblin self, antique high on soul's shelf. When love piped on these lips, there was no slipping back. Reconciliation flowed like oil of highest worth, so rare, so fitting homage to the maker of earth. And our great brothers will sing about rejoicing, not about the drunkenness of spiritual euphoria, but about the internal joy of new life, which has survived suffering, for which, in my mind, The best idiom is jazz. Lazarus That's the first time I've ever heard that song, and I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you to Steve Butler for writing it just last weekend. And to Warren Rogers for learning it in a weekend. And Gray, thank you. Maybe it seems like the journey should stop here. Certainly we're about out of time with chapel. But there is a further stage, which I would call Jubilee, in which the soul, out of thankfulness and obedience to its maker, goes beyond its own private experience into a world where injustice and debt is the rule. It envisions a Sabbath rest for society, such as the world has never yet fully seen, but which God in his wisdom has commanded. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament was the 50th year after seven times seven had passed. In it, debts were to be forgiven and slaves freed. The Israelites and we were notorious for failing to keep the observance. I've given this poem exactly 49 words. The 50th is for God to speak through you as you go out into the world. Leviticus 25, verse 10. You shall send it through all your land to sound a blast and proclaim liberation for all its inhabitants. The unspoken word, the unheld feast, fiftieth day after days, week after weeks, year after years. Name above all names dumb. When will fences fall, shackles crack? We forgive our debtors. Honks I hear, but... Never heard the ram's horn blow. When will heart beat still enough to hear? You're dismissed.